Welcome to Dinosaur George Kids. A show for anyone who loves dinosaurs. Dinosaur George has studied paleontology for over 50 years and has performed live to over 4 million students across the world. So sit back and enjoy today's show. Now, here's Dinosaur George. Dinosaur Owen, and welcome to my show. Wait a minute. What? Who is this? Oh, this is Dinosaur Owen. I run the show now. Well, now wait. Hold on a minute, kid. This is my show. I'm Dinosaur George. This is Dinosaur George Kids, not Dinosaur Owen Kids. How did you get into this computer? Um, I'm pretty sure I'm running this show now. <laughs> now it's time to interview you. How cool is that, everybody? This is my friend Owen, who has uh, been a longtime friend and one of my Patreon club members. And Owen came up with the coolest concept. He said, I'd like to do an interview where I get to interview you because nobody knows that much about the dinosaur George person. They know everybody else I interview. So I thought, you know, Owen, that's actually kind of a cool idea. And so Owen was nice enough to put up a list of questions he wants to ask me, and he is going to do an interview. Now, I don't like the fact that he snuck in and took over my show. I didn't think that was going to happen. I don't know how you work this out, kid, but I'll figure it out one of these days. But Owen, tell us a little bit about you first. You've you've been collecting fossils, right? You got a pretty amazing collection, don't you? Yeah. So I've been collecting for I think at least I was five or six, I want to say. Um I've been interested in paleontology about that's probably when I got interested in paleontology. But that's probably like it's what I'm most interested into now. Right. And your club has like taught me so many new things and like brought my understanding to a whole new level. So I have to thank you for that. Well, I want to tell you though, um, the first time I ever talked to you, I was absolutely amazed at your level of knowledge of paleontology. You are at a very, very high level. How old are you now? Um, I'm 13. You just turned 13, right? Yes. Yeah. When I, the first time I talked to you, I was laughing. I told your mom, I thought you were 26 or 27 years old. Because you have an incredible amount of knowledge. So anyway, this this is Owen, who is in Arizona, lives out in Arizona. And um, uh, so, Owen, I'm going to let you take over my job, and I'm going to take the role of the person being interviewed. So let's go. Okay. Dinosaur George, where did you grow up? Um, my dad was in the Air Force, and we traveled a lot. I used to live in Maryland, Suitland, Maryland. And that's where I started school. But then when I, when I started second grade, I moved to a little city called Hondo, Texas. It's west of San Antonio. And I grew up on a farm. We had a farm and we had a ranch. And so I grew up on a farm and spent time on the ranch right outside of San Antonio. That's cool. And what did you do for fun when you were growing up? Oh, growing up on a farm is like the greatest thing in the world. Because we had a bunch of animals. Now, there's one thing when you're a farmer and you raise animals, it's not like you have a pet dog or a pet sheep. 
you have like 15 sheep and 25 cows and 12 horses. And so we had to do a lot of work. You had to feed them. You had to take care of them. I didn't think that was fun, but having them was like the most fun in the world. We would go out. We had a, we had a goat that used to chase me around and try to knock me down. And as a kid, it was the greatest game in the world because I would run up and slap him on the rear and take off running. And that goat would take off after me and I'd go up a tree or I'd run around in circles around a tree. That goat would chase me for hours. And then of course we used to bale hay, you know, you, you grow hay and you cut it, you put it into bales so that you can feed the cows during the winter when there's no food. So the hay we kept in a big barn. Well, it was these big square blocks of hay and we would build forts so we would build a fort with a trap door and spaces where we could look out. And, oh, I spent every minute of the day playing outside. I would sometimes, Owen, I would go just spend all day turning over rocks just to see if I could find a lizard or a frog. And we had a pond. I used to go down there and watch the snakes. And it was a great life. So, yeah, I, I lived growing up. It was the greatest thing. We didn't have air conditioning in our home. And it used to get to be, you know, it's 100 degrees in Texas. So you didn't want to be in the house. And there's no cable TV and there's no computers. So the fun was being outside. And that's where I used to spend my time. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Did you always want to be a paleontologist or something like a doctor or what? You know, what I really wanted to do for a while was I wanted to be I wanted to work for the parks system, like the national parks, like working at Yellowstone Park or working at the Grand Canyon or something like that. And I really wanted to do that. But once I got to be about, I guess, in my early teens, like 13 or 14, that's when my love of dinosaurs really took off. And I absolutely wanted to be a paleontologist. But when I got into high school, And I went to go talk to the counselor. That's the person that helps you kind of figure out what you do, you know, where you go to school. I went into the counselor. Now, this was a very small town of only 5,000 people. And the counselor had never heard of paleontologists. He had no idea what a paleontologist was. And so the counselor kind of told me, I don't think that's a real job. And I was so devastated by it. I was so crushed by it. But you have to remember, Owen, there was no internet. There was the only time a TV show would come on. There was only three stations when I grew up. There's only three TV stations and they rarely showed dinosaur shows. And so you could read about them in books, but nowhere did they say that paleontologists get paid for what they do. So when my counselor said that he didn't think it was a real job. I thought that meant that you can't get paid to do it. Maybe the people I was reading about, maybe they just did it in their spare time. I was so devastated by it. I decided to not go to college because I was so upset that I couldn't be a paleontologist. So I got into retail, you know, selling things. And my career really took off and I got promoted and I got hired by different companies and my career took off and I was making a lot of money doing that, but I loved paleontology and that's my love. And that's been my love my whole life. And so I, I 
wanted to be, uh, I wanted to work in the park system when I was little. Then I wanted to be a paleontologist, but then I was mistaken to think that paleontology wasn't a real job. What did you, what does someone need to have a job like yours? <laughs> well, if the, the right way to do it, and, and I say the right way, because you need to go to college, you need to get at least four years of college if you're going to be a geologist or a paleontologist. Then if you want to be a doctor of paleontology, you have to go for extra years. You have to go at least two extra years to, to become a doctor. But the right thing to do would be to decide once you get into high school, figure out what kind of paleontologist you want to be. Because some paleontologists work in the field. All they do is dig. Some work in the laboratories where they clean the bones. Some are teachers. Some are scientists who do research. So once you kind of figure out what you'd like to do, then the proper thing is to find out which college serves, has the best courses and then focus your attention there. So which, I, I don't know if you said this or not, but like which college did you say you went to? I didn't. I oh. didn't go to college. I was so, oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. I was so devastated by it. Uh, if I could do it all again, I would probably go to Bozeman, Montana or the University of Colorado, or uh, Brigham Young in Utah. I mean, there's lots of great colleges that teach great courses on paleontology. But, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would probably go to probably go to Bozeman, Montana. Are they, like, super good with paleontology? Or? Well, the good thing about Montana is you're right there in the area where bones are found, so you get to go on more digs. I mean, if, you know, if, if, if you were lucky— you know, you could go to to uh, uh, Alberta, Canada, go to the University of Alberta, because, again, they're right there. Like we have great uh, schools in Texas, but you have to drive eight, nine hours to get to a site to get to dig. Whereas if you're in Utah, Colorado, South Dakota, any of those places, you're right there. Yeah. yeah. So you get to go and do more digging. And that's why I would choose that. It's not that it's a better school. It's just in a better spot. Yeah. Also. What do you do besides your podcasts? Well, I, I do a number of things. I do public speaking where people hire me to come in and talk about dinosaurs and prehistoric life. Uh, I, I speak sometimes to kindergarten students and I speak to adult groups. I speak to college students. Then I also have a website where we sell merchandise. So I have to be associated with that. And then I have a small museum at a place called Traders Village in San Antonio where I do that. And so I do a lot of things and I have my traveling museum and that's really takes up all my time is my traveling museum. Also, why and when did you start being called Dinosaur George? I mean, you heard of his also. <laughs> I wanted to know where it came from. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a really good question. It happened in uh, 1999. I was teaching a group of homeschool students and there was a, a young boy there who kept calling me Dinosaur George. Whenever he raised his hand, he would say Dinosaur. Nobody had ever called me that before, ever. And all of a sudden, every kid in the room started calling me that. Dinosaur George. Yeah. Yes. And then suddenly, it was like, it spread like crazy. But when it really became pos uh, popular, there's a professional card mechanic. And, and that means somebody that can do card tricks, but he does stuff that's beyond belief. His name is Richard Turner. He is the world's greatest card mechanic. He's 
Google Richard Turner cards and you won't believe what you see. Anyway, Richard and I became friends and Richard called me Dinosaur George, but he called me Dinosaur George in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. And that's when it took off. So once that happened, it was really weird because I go into the grocery store and I'll have people walk by and, hey, Dinosaur George, I answer to it now like it's my real name. My dad used to call me Dinosaur George. That's that's hilarious. So 1999 is when I became Dinosaur George. Mm -hmm. So what would you say would be the hardest thing about your job? Uh, The travel. I travel a lot. And so that's the hardest part because sometimes we drive eight hours and then we get to where we're going and then we set up the museum and we host a whole day event and then we pack the museum up and we load it back into the trailer and we move on to the next place. So the travel wears me out because I can, in one week I can drive, you know, in some cases we drive a thousand miles in a week. So that's the hardest part of my job. And what's the best or most fun part about your job? getting to talk to kids and watching them when they see something amazing. Like when they walk up, if it's the first time they've ever got close to a Tyrannosaurus skull, they go nuts. And I love that because I love to meet young people who love dinosaurs. You're a perfect example. I had so much fun talking to you the first time we talked. I'm like, that's the best part of my job is meeting young people who like dinosaurs. At first, when I like started listening to your lessons, I didn't really think, I would get to know you at all. I thought I was just going to be able to like, you would answer a couple of my questions and things like that. And look where we are now, I guess. You're right. Yeah. You've taken over my show, you little thief. I have. Yeah. That's exactly where we are. Now I regret meeting you because you snuck in and took control of my whole studio. So what's the coolest thing you've ever found on dig? Cause I know you've gone on a couple before, but yeah. I don't really know what you've found. Well, the coolest thing was actually the very first dinosaur bone I ever saw and picked up. Uh, Growing up as a kid, my favorite dinosaur was Allosaurus. That was my favorite dinosaur. And the very first time I ever went fossil hunting by myself looking for dinosaur bones, um, the first bone I saw and picked up turned out to be the tailbone of an Allosaurus. That's cool. So I found some amazing other things. I found big pieces, bones, teeth, jaws legs. I found all kinds of stuff, but that remains, in my opinion, the coolest thing because it was my favorite dinosaur and it was my first dinosaur bone. So it's like sort of on a personal level, I want to say. Very much so. Yeah. When I was little, I loved Allosaurus and growing up my whole life, that's the, that was my favorite dinosaur. And it was meant to be my favorite because that's the first thing I ever found. So uh, what is the, what is your favorite thing about your museum? You know, as far as the pieces, it's the Spinosaurus skull. I've got a huge Spinosaurus skull in there. And I love that thing because it's so big. But the museum itself, what I like is, again, I like to see young people walk in. And I get a lot of adults that love them too, which I love too. But I really enjoy watching kids because they just, they just stand there sometimes with their mouth open when they see a Spinosaurus for the first time. Most mm-hmm. kids have only seen a Spinosaurus in a book or on in a movie, but yeah. they never walked up to the skull. And you could walk up four feet away from it. You're standing there looking at it going, that thing would have eaten me. And so that's really cool is when kids get to see that kind of stuff. I like that a lot. Yeah, it is something that's 
very cool. Like knowing that you're that close to remains of like a yeah. long gone animal. Absolutely. And what was the worst and best experience with fossils? Like everyone's had probably a good and bad one. I know <laughs> I have. Yeah. So. The, the worst happened in Utah where I was digging for three days and I wasn't paying attention to the weather. I wasn't listening to the radio because I was so focused. And I like to sleep in a sleeping bag out in the open. I don't like sleeping in a tent. I like sleeping, looking up, seeing the stars. Well, at night, this really, really strong cold front blew in and I wasn't expecting it. And I didn't realize it until the temperature dropped really bad and my eyelashes froze to my face. I couldn't open my eyes because my eyelashes were frozen. I was trying to open my eyes and I couldn't because my eyelashes were frozen to, to my, to my face. So I had to open my eyes as best I could and squint and crawl over to the Jeep and find a lighter and light it and light a candle and hold it below my face. So it warmed up enough to where I could open my eyes. That was absolutely one of the worst experiences. That was bad. Yeah. But one of the, one of the ones that I really, one of the experiences I had that I really thought was cool was well, happened in Arizona. As a matter of fact, in the Tonto national forest, I was there looking for fossilized coral. And I found this old antique stopwatch just out in the middle of nowhere. And it was old and I could only see the numbers 22 on it. And I don't know if it was from 1922 or what, but that was a really cool, had nothing to do with fossils, but I picked it up and went, you know, somebody owned this. Yeah. Yeah, Somebody had, this is somebody's stopwatch. And I suspect it was from 1920. Could have been from 1822 for all I know. It would be cool if it like drifted over from the Titanic or something. Like that. <laughs> or if I read the inscription and said to my husband, General George Custer, good luck. I've got a good feeling about this trip. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a little bit unrelated, but I'm curious. What's your favorite food? Oh, if it's one food, it would be rice. If I was stranded on an island with 50,000 pounds of rice, I'd be happy. I love rice, but my favorite kind of food, it's kind of a toss up between Chinese food and uh, Mexican food. Both of those I like very much. And and that's, that's a hard choice though. Yeah. You chose like two of the, um, two of the country food, whatever you call it. Yeah. That rice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, in all honesty, popcorn is my favorite food, but my doctor doesn't let me eat much popcorn anymore. Yeah. So I'm trying to behave. Popcorn would really be the answer. And if you could meet one person you've never met before, who would it be and why? Uh, if I could meet one person in, in paleontology or anybody? Just anybody. Anybody. Wow. Uh, that's a good question. Um, certainly, it would, it would probably be, wow, that's a, that's a brilliant question. If I could meet one person, who would I want to talk to? Um, wow. Okay, this sounds crazy, but it would be Carlos Santana, who's a musician. Because I met him once in the airport in San Antonio, and he was the most courteous and kind and decent person. And I would have given anything to sit down for a couple of hours and just talk to him about his music. So it sounds kind of crazy. You'd think it'd be a historical figure, but it's actually be Carlos Santana. So what's your, this is just because 
What is your favorite dinosaur or prehistoric animal? Well, Allosaurus stays at the top. But I will tell you this. Over the last couple of years, I've really started to fall in love with the ankylosaurs, all of them. I've really started focusing on them and the ceratopsians too. You know, growing up, I only like meat eaters. But boy, I've really kind of kind of leaning more. And then, of course, prehistoric mammals are very important to me. I love prehistoric mammals, especially rhinos. So is there anything you would like to share to the podcast that we haven't already mentioned? You know, one of the things that I love the most about the podcast is how many people get to hear it. Um, We're in 108 countries. And so... I love the idea that I'm sitting in a studio in New Braunfels, Texas is where I am. And you and I are having this conversation. And then when this podcast is edited and goes out, there'll be hundreds of thousands of people that will hear it. Maybe millions in a couple of years because people will be able to listen to it always. And I just find it so amazing that I'm sitting behind this microphone and my voice will go out to thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people all over the world. And that to me is just fascinating. Yeah. It's been a pleasure interviewing you. So, well, listen, I, I have never had anybody interview me as well as you. I've had a lot of TV stations and radio stations, but they ask the same old questions. Yours have been pretty impressive. So I appreciate that you are giving me back my podcast, which I thank you very much for not stealing my podcast. And oh, and thank you very much for letting me be interviewed on my show because I didn't think I would ever do that. So thank you so much. Thanks for letting me interview you. This has been a very good experience, I should say. And thank you to all the people who are listening. This is Dinosaur Owen signing out. Now you can bring Dinosaur George into your classroom, home, or facility anywhere in the world with our virtual lessons. We offer over 15 different topics, including dinosaurs, prehistoric mammals, rocks and minerals, and more. Any age, any location, and any time zone. Visit us at DinosaurGeorge.com. That was a lot of fun. You know, I've been interviewed by people, uh, newspapers, TV stations, radio stations, pretty much all over the world. And um, I've got to admit, I had more fun with that interview with Owen than I did with all of the other ones that I've done before. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. We just thought we'd do something a little bit different. This podcast is going to be different from the other ones because in this one, I'm not going to do a feature creature. I'm not going to do any who would wins. I'm only going to answer questions submitted by all of you. So let's get into it. We're going to start with the questions I get from my Patreon club members because they always, always get priority. So let's jump into it. This one comes from Thomas and Leo who said, we would like to know, does micropachy cephalosaurus walk on two legs or four? Also, if there are any ceratopsians that don't look like other ceratopsians, we would, we would love a podcast on these cool dinosaurs. Thanks. Well, you know, Thomas and Leo, those, that's a very good suggestion. And there are so many amazing ceratopsians. First of all, with Micropachycephalosaurus, it appears that it is walking on two legs. And I only say that because there's very little evidence of what this animal is. There's a lot of confusion as to what it is, how big it is. Some papers that I read suggest that it is a baby 
uh, Pachycephalosaur. Others believe that that's as big as it would get. I've never done enough study to really know with any certainty what the what the facts are. But from what I know, it's a very small dinosaur, and it appears to walk on only two legs. Now, as for ceratopsians that don't look like other ceratopsians, yeah, if you if you look at the the skull. Now, the body itself is pretty standard, even from as little as Zuniceratops and Protoceratops all the way up to Triceratops. The bodies are basically the same. They look very, very similar. There's small differences, but not much that you would recognize. And of course, there's a difference in size. But other than that, they look very, very similar. When it comes to the skull, that's where you see the difference. Now, for all Ceratopsians, you have dinosaurs like Cetacosaurus that really don't look very much like the other ceratopsians other than that beak. So I guess that would be a good uh, a good example of a ceratopsian that doesn't look like others because it just doesn't have the big frill and it doesn't have the same body design and any of that stuff. Um, okay, Finoraptor. Hey, DG, what is your fourth favorite dinosaur? Thank you for all your answer, awesome answers and always making us laugh. Hey, Finoraptor, glad you enjoy I'm glad you enjoy my craziness. My fourth favorite, that's kind of hard. Allosaurus is my favorite. Deinonychus is probably my second favorite. Utah Raptor would be my third. Who would be my fourth? Well, a long time ago, I would have said Tyrannosaurus Rex or Velociraptor, but I've really become very fond of the Ankylosaurs, especially a little one like Gastonia. Now, he's a notosaur, but he still fits into the family of Ankylosaurs. So I would I would guess Gastonia would be my fourth. That's a hard one. That's a very hard one, but that's a good one. All right, let's see. Philip says, why does Dilophosaurus have a, have a venom? Do other dinosaurs in the family have similar weapons? Well, Philip, the the reality is that Dilophosaurus doesn't have venom in spits. That was just made up for the movie in Jurassic Park. That was only made up. There's absolutely no evidence that would suggest that Dilophosaurus has any of that stuff. He doesn't have a frill and he doesn't spit venom. Again, totally made up for the movie. Now, why did they do that? Well, because they claimed that the dinosaurs were made in a lab where they mixed DNA. And so maybe they mixed the DNA of a cobra with the DNA of Dilophosaurus to make their version. But uh, in reality, they didn't have that. We don't know of any dinosaurs that have venom, although there is some suggestion that maybe some of the small ones did. And it wouldn't surprise me if they ever find out that some dinosaurs do have venom because dinosaurs evolved from the same family that ultimately became snakes and lizards and snakes and lizards. Some lizards have venom. So it's certainly possible that some dinosaurs could have. All right. Madelinosaurus. What a great name. I'm wondering if carnivores took a taste bite of their prey like sharks do before digging in. Oh, that's a great question, Madelinosaurus. Um, one of the reasons why sharks often take a taste bite is because sometimes they are hunting in dirty or muddy water or at night, and maybe they can't identify the prey visually, meaning they, they can't see it very clearly, so they have to kind of take a taste bite. Now, I believe dinosaurs, carnivorous dinosaurs, would have known exactly who or what they were attacking before they attacked it. So I would think that, in my opinion, once they targeted their prey, they're not going to take a taste bite. They're going to go in and take a chomp. 
Now, it could be, Madeline, that they take a chomp and then they stand back and let the animal slowly die of of uh, blood loss or, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shock, where the animal just slowly dies. That way they don't have to fight the animal and they don't get hurt as easily. So it may be that they would take a chomp, but it's probably not to taste who it is. In my opinion, it probably means that they uh, they already knew they already knew who it was they were biting. Great question. All right, Caleb Velociraptor said, "Hey DG, when I flap my arms, I still cannot fly. How does Pteranodon fly?" What a great question, Caleb. Well, Caleb Velociraptor, what a great last name, by the way. One of the reasons why you and I can't fly is because how much we weigh because of our bones. Our bones weigh a lot. Pteranodon's bones didn't weigh very much at all. So Pteranodon is more like a kite. You and I could never move our arms fast enough to make enough pressure to lift us off the ground. We just simply can't do it. Our arms can't move that fast. And our arms are not wide like the wing of a pteranodon. So the wing of a pteranodon can gather more air, can catch more air. So when it flaps down, it moves enough air to lift its body off and to fly. So you and I can't fly because our arms are just not made for it. But that's a good question. All right, James E. Rex. This is great. James E. Rex. What a great name, James E. Rex. That's great. Um, Lugo, uh, James wants to know, when did the dinosaurs age start? Well, that was about uh, 250 million years ago. About that time is when the first dinosaurs start to appear. That's in the late Triassic period. And that's about the time when they first appeared. Maybe a little bit earlier than that. Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe a little bit earlier than that. But it was definitely a very long times ago. James E. Rex, what a great name. All right, Acadia, have you read Who Would Win book series? I've not, uh, by Jerry uh, Pallotta. I have not, uh, Acadia. Uh, I would, li- I definitely would like to read them, but I have not. But what a cool book series. I didn't even know there was one. All right, Utrecht wants to know how fast a Rugops could run. Was she relatively fast or slow dinosaur? Thank you. Well, hi, Utrecht. Uh, Rugops... I, I've never looked at the, I, I've only I've only looked at the skull of a Rugops, so I'm not familiar enough to know about its potential speed. But since meat eating dinosaurs are very bird like, I would imagine that the animal was relatively fast compared to its size. You know, you look at an elephant, you don't think it could run fast. An elephant can outrun a human or a rhino or a hippo are very, very fast, even though they're large. And so I would imagine because there is that giant, that bird-like skeletal design, I, su- I would imagine Rugops is probably relatively fast. Now, whether it could keep up that speed for a long time, I don't know. I don't know. But um, anyway, that's a, that's a good question. All right, here's another one from Madeline Asaurus. Uh, are there any species from the trilobite family that are still alive? By the way, Maddie loved the lesson on the Burgess Shale. I'm so glad, Maddie, that you liked that Burgess Shale class. I enjoyed teaching it. It was so much fun. You know, the closest thing to trilobites would be crabs and shrimp and those little roly-poly bugs that live in your backyard. 
Those are the closest animals. Now, down in the deeper part of the ocean, there are some weird-looking animals that look just like trilobites, but I don't know if they came from that same family or not. So technically, there isn't a species of trilobite, but if you, boy, I wish I could remember what they're called, but they they live in the deep ocean, and they they look so much like a trilobite, I don't know why they're not a trilobite, to tell you the truth, but I can't remember the name of that particular animal. Uh, okay, Kara wants to know, what part of the Earth did the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs hit? It hit in a place, Kara, called the Yucatan Peninsula, which is in Mexico. It hit at the Yucatan Peninsula, and if you if you Google Chicxulub, that's the name of the they gave to the crater that showed where it hit. I think Chicxulub, I know it's C-H-I-X-A-L, if you just type that in any Google search engine or any search engine, you'll probably get a picture of the Chicxulub crate or hit for Chicxulub, and then you can look and see where it is. But it was in the Yucatan Peninsula. All right, my buddy Noah, when did the earliest snake appear? Noah, I believe the first snakes are mid to late Cretaceous. But the problem with the problem with um snakes is that their skeletons are so thin their bones are so small even titanoboa has relatively small bones compared to other things small bones don't fossilize very well and therefore snakes don't necessarily make good fossils so how long ago they really appeared is still a mystery because we just don't know for sure uh, Noah also wants to know was Kellenkin how good was Kellenkin's vision? Well, just for everybody out there, I all my Patreon club members are getting to vote on which would be the next um, uh, feature creature that I'm going to do. And right now, it looks like the votes are going to go to Kellenkin. So Kellenkin's vision, I think, would be very good, and I'll make sure to cover Kellenkin in uh, or cover its vision, Noah in um, the next upcoming podcast. All right, now let's jump in. Now, that was all my Patreon members. They sent great questions. Now let's go to the public. Those of you that sent questions through the dinosaurgeorge.com website. For those of you that would like to send a question, go to dinosaurgeorge.com. Click on the Dinosaur George Kids podcast page. And at the bottom of the page, there's a form that you can fill out. So let's jump into it. This is Ryan, age three, from Wollongong, Australia. How do Parasaurolophus get out of a swamp? Well, good question, Ryan. Parasaurolophus was probably a pretty decent swimmer. That big flattened tail may have been moved back and forth, kind of sort of like a, a, a paddle. It could also probably do the doggy paddle. If you know what that means, it means its front legs and back legs are both kind of kicking to move it. And because it's a large animal, now you'd think it might sink, but that's not true. It probably floated pretty well. So I would say that if it ever got into a swamp, Ryan, it simply could, uh, like its feet are big. So if it's in the mud, its feet have big flat thing. It's like, have you ever heard of something called a snowshoe? If a human is walking through the snow, our feet go down into the snow and it's very hard to walk. The same thing with mud. We get stuck because our feet are not very wide and they sink. But if you put on a snowshoe, it makes a big flat surface where you can walk on top of the snow 
you don't sink in. Well, Parasaurolophus's back feet were sort of like that. They were wide, so they probably didn't sink in very deep. So it would be able to either walk out or swim out. All right, Benedict, age four, from Sydney, Australia, another Australian listener. Did carnivores ever pretend to be a plant eater, get closer, and then eat them? Whoa, this is a good one, Benedict. Yes, I think they probably did. I think they may have camouflaged. They may have had markings that were similar to their prey. Maybe they were the same color. The prey, if the prey could ever smell them, then they would know what's going on. But yeah, I do think it might be possible that some carnivores may have tried to mimic their prey, but it would be kind of hard to do because most carnivores are all biped, meaning they only walk on two legs. Most of the carnivores, the herbivores back then walked on four, but they could certainly maybe slump over when they walked. It's a very, very good question. I wish there was some evidence to support it. But I do think that that would certainly be a good hunting skill. That's very good. All right, let's see. Uh, Elliot, who is age seven, who happens to be a T-Rex member from Yorkshire, United Kingdom. Hello, Dinosaur George. Every day I listen to your podcast and I have I have now run out of podcasts, so I'm really listening to all of them. <laughs> okay, um, Elliot wants to know, have you ever found a new dinosaur species? I have not, Elliotosaurus. I have not, and by the way, I'm glad you're listening to a new podcast. I have not ever found a new species. I have found a lot of bones from other species, but everything I have found has been something that uh, something that has already been discovered and named. Okay, um, let's see. Let's go to Shane, age four, from Orange County, California. Hi, Dinosaur George. Why did woolly mammoths only live in ice? Were there non-woolly mammoths during the ice age? Thank you. Yes, Shane, good question. Woolly mammoths were made for living in a colder environment, but it wasn't always ice. Like, for instance, during the summer and spring, there was uh, plenty of grass. It was probably relatively warm for that area. So they didn't live where it always snowed because they would never be able to find food. Only during the winter time were they probably trudging through the deep snow. So they actually lived in a colder climate, but it was still lots to eat. Think of places like Alaska. Alaska gets very cold, and yet there's very lush green environment. That's kind of sort of where it lived. Now, as for were there any that were not woolly, absolutely yes. There was a bunch of different elephants. There was... um, the Colombian mammoth, or sometimes called the Southern mammoth. That's a mammoth that lived here in Texas, where I live, and they lived all the way down into South America. They weren't covered in hair because it never got cold enough. Excuse me. It never got cold enough for them to need to wear a coat. So, yes, there was a bunch of different kind of mammoths. Mastodons that lived in the South probably didn't have a lot of hair. There was all kinds of prehistoric elephants, and a lot of those belonged to the mammoth group, and the mammoths were not all completely covered in hair. Great question. Very good. Very good question. All right. uh, Noel, age six, from Orange County, California. Hi, Dinosaur George. My question is, why do pterosaurs have small hands at the end of their wings? What did they use them for? Thank you. Noel, very, very good question. Nicely done. When a pterosaur walked, They walk on all fours. 
they fold their wing up behind them and they crawl around on all four. They would use their hands for walking across the ground and they, the smaller ones probably crawled up in trees where they could launch themselves and fly away. Well, to get up into the tree, you could either fly and land, or if it was a dense tree, you could crawl up into it from the ground. And so they actually use their claws for a number of different things. It's a very interesting uh, question. All right. Teddy H5 from London over in the beautiful UK. Hi, Dinosaur George. I have a question for you. Does Stegosaurus have teeth? Thank you so much. Can't wait to join you for Sunday's lesson. Oh, Teddy, 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 you're one of our Patreon members. I hope you enjoyed Sunday's lesson, by the way. All right. Does Stegosaurus have teeth? Yes, they do. They're very small, Teddy, and they're towards the back of the mouth. When you look at the beak, that that cropping section of the of the mouth, you might think they don't have teeth at all because there's none in the front. But actually, stegosauruses do have tiny little teeth in the back. They kind of look like little little leaves or little plants. They're weird looking little teeth. But yes, they definitely have teeth. What a great question. Very good. Okay, let's see. Um Benjamin, age six from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Dinosaur George. Ben would like to know if all raptors had an extendable killing claw. Well, to be a member of that family, Ben, you had to have that curved claw on your foot. And that curved claw could be wiggled up and down just like you can wiggle your toes. So to be a member of the real raptor family, you had to have it. But let me tell you what's confusing. The word raptor can be used in the name of a dinosaur that doesn't have that killing claw. So that's confusing. Raptor is the nickname that we give that group of dinosaurs that have that curved claw on their foot. But it doesn't mean the word raptor is a scientific term. It's a nickname. So the true name is Maniraptor or Dromaeosaurid. I like to use Dromaeosaurid. That's really what you call those dinosaurs. So there's a dinosaur named Eoraptor, Oviraptor, and Megaraptor. None of those dinosaurs have that curved claw on their foot. And that might be the thing that's confusing you. Never pay attention to the name. Always look at the foot. If you're trying to figure out which dinosaur belongs to the group we call raptors, never pay attention to the name because there's uh, Deinonychus and there's uh, Dromaeosaurus and they don't have the word raptor in their name, but they have that killing claw. So always look at the foot. Good question. All right, let's see. This is, I think it's pronounced Chask from the United Arab Emirates. I believe that's how you pronounce it, Chask or Chask. Um, however you pronounce it, I hope I didn't offend you by pronouncing it incorrectly. Uh, let's see. Jay said, is the asteroid, if the asteroid hadn't wiped out the dinosaurs, would we be affected or changed by it? I love your podcast. What a what an interesting question. And thank you. That's very kind of you, Chase, to, to ask that. Um, or to say that you like my podcast. I'm so glad you listen over in your beautiful country, by the way. Yes, if the dinosaurs had not been, if the terrestrial dinosaurs hadn't been wiped out at the end of the age of dinosaurs, it would have changed everything on this planet. There is no telling what the planet would be like today if it hadn't done that. Because if the dinosaurs hadn't been wiped out, 
humans are never going to show up because we wouldn't have the chance. So maybe, maybe all these hundreds of millions of years later, or millions of years later, maybe dinosaurs would still rule. I mean, that would be a great, that would be a great question. All right, let's see. Uh, Vivan. Hi, Dinosaur George. He's from India, by the way. Hi, Dinosaur George. I love your podcast and I listen to every new podcast. So glad, buddy. Nice to have you with us. My question is, is you Tyrannus a part of the T-Rex family or is, and is Truodon venomous? Good questions, both of these. Yes, you Tyrannus is part of the Tyrannosaur family. He fits in, so he's a relative of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Question one, that's a good question. Question two, is Truodon venomous? Well, you know, a little while ago I mentioned about venomous dinosaurs. There's no way to know. There's no evidence that suggests that Truodon had venom glands or hollow. You, you'd need some way of injecting the venom in most cases. So most of the way that's done is with a tooth or a fang that is hollow where they bite into it and the venom goes through the hollow spot into the, into the wound. But that's not necessarily true because some dino, some uh, lizards like the beaded lizard and the Gila monster do not have hollow teeth. What they do is when they chew on something, venom sacks in their jaws the venom is squeezed out and runs down the side of the tooth and into the wound. So it's certainly possible that there may have been a dinosaur that was uh, venomous, but that's very hard to know because there's no evidence right now to support it. Very good questions. Very good. All right. Uh, let's see. Joel, age eight from Washington State. Hi, Dinosaur George. Did Dinosuchus and Eoraptor live together? Did Deinonychus and T-Rex live in the same time period? Thank you. Hi, Joel. Good to hear from you. Dinosuchus is late Cretaceous. Eoraptor is late Triassic. So these animals never saw each other. They never came in contact. Deinonychus is mid-Cretaceous. T-Rex is late Cretaceous. Again, separated by a couple of million years. So they did not see each other as well. But there were definitely big crocodilian things living with Eoraptor, and there was definitely large carnivores living with Deinonychus. For instance, Acrocanthosaurus was alive when Deinonychus was alive, and Acrocanthosaurus is darn near as big as Tyrannosaurus rex. So they did definitely see big animals living around them, but not those particular ones. All right, let's see. Uh, let me keep going through here real quick. Jeremy, age nine, from Homestead, Florida. Hi, Dinosaur George. I love your podcast. Thank you, buddy. Jeremy says, is Elasmosaurus the same thing as a plesiosaur? Yes. Good question. Good question. Plesiosaur is the name of a group of animals. Plesiosaurs were a group of animals. Within that group of animals, there's a bunch of different members. Elasmosaurus is one of the members of the plesiosaur family. So think of plesiosaur like the word dog. When you say dog, there's all kinds of dogs. Well, when you say plesiosaur, there's all kinds of plesiosaurs. And Elasmosaurus is one of them, and I believe the biggest and certainly the one with the longest neck. Good job, Jeremy. That's a good question. 
Let's see. Um, 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 hang on a second. And we keep going. Um, oh, hang on a minute. I went. I went the wrong way. Hang on. Come on now. <clears throat> I'm actually on. Uh, I just. I'm just opening up my email. I'm just opening up email and reading all these questions. All right, Silas H. Five from Edmonds, Washington. Were Microraptors omnivores? I don't know, uh, Silas. Everything I've seen, they appear to be carnivorous. They don't seem to have any sort of tooth that was made for anything other than eating meat. My best guess would be Microraptors were purely carnivores. Let's see, Reza from Seattle, Washington. Reza, what is the biggest prehistoric mammal during the Ice Age? Well, the Ice Age is actually called the Pleistocene. And during the Pleistocene, I believe the biggest mammal would have been the Imperial Mammoth or Mammoth Trogon Theory. I think he lived in the, in the Pleistocene. These are gigantic elephants. Now, before the Ice Age, the biggest mammal was the giant rhino, Paraceratherium or Beluchotherium or Andrucotherium, whichever name you go by. But that was before the Ice Age. So the actual Ice Age, it would have been one of the giant mammoths. Good question. Let's see. Um, let me keep going here. Let me keep going. Let's see. Jaden, age 10 from Malaysia, Penang. Nice to have you with me again, Jaden. Hi, it's me again, Jaden. Hi, Jaden. My favorite dinosaur is Apatosaurus, and I want to know if it's possible for any carnivore that could eat a fully grown sauropod. Thanks. Jaden, probably. First of all, to kill a full-grown sauropod of any of the big sauropods would be, in my opinion, just very unlikely. Full-grown sauropods are just too big for the majority of any carnivore, and especially if you're talking about a patasaurus. That's a big dinosaur. So I, there's just, I don't think there's any way they would even mess with them. But let's say they found one that died or they say they killed it. Could they eat it? There's so much meat on a sauropod that I believe that they would only eat on it for a couple of days before the meat would probably rot and they would not be interested in it anymore. So I would think that there's none that could eat a whole one. It might take a group of them to eat a whole one because there is a lot of meat. All right, Laura, age eight from the United Kingdom. Why did a Carnotaurus and Allosaurus have horns on their head? Great, great question. The answer is, I wish I knew. It's probably a couple of things, Laura. Carnotaurus, the horns on its skull are really thick and heavy. And that suggests to me that they are using that head to ram. Maybe they're pushing and shoving against rivals. Maybe they are using that head to knock down prey to, so it gets off its feet and it can grab it before it runs away. Allosaurus, on the other hand, has horns, but they're much smaller. And they're not really, they don't look to be made for ramming or being used. So in the case of Allosaurus, it's probably its horns are probably there just to be able to draw attention to itself. Maybe a male Allosaurus could look at the size of the horns of another and think, man, that one's too big. I'm not going to mess with it. Maybe it was attractive. Maybe females thought, thought that the horns looked attractive and would draw them over to them. So in the case of Carnotaurus, I believe that they are actually weapons used in confrontation or in uh, combat, 
with Allosaurus, I think those were more for just for show to attract a mate or maybe even scare off a rival. All right, let's keep going. Uh, Felix, age nine from Switzerland, Geneva. Very good. My favorite dinosaur is Velociraptor, and I made a, I did a whole talk about it at my school. Very good. Um, the question is, have we found dinosaurs in space? And I asked because I read in a book that we found them in space. You should come visit and taste our fondue. Uh, you know what? I would love to come to Switzerland, my friend. Felix, if I ever come to Switzerland, your family is going to have to be my official tour guide. I would love, love to go. And so let's see. Um, were there any dinosaurs in space? No, there's never been any bones of any animal found in space. Maybe your connection to space, there's, there may be two things. One, of course, the asteroid that ended the terrestrial dinosaurs came from space. That might be it. But the other could be, you might be talking about, is it Compsonathus or Coelophysis? One of the two, scientists, or scientists, astronauts, actually took some of the bones of a dinosaur into space with them, just for fun. They took a dinosaur to space on one of the Apollo missions. They took it to space and brought it back home. They just gave it a ride. So that might be, you may have heard something like that, and that may be the confusing thing, Felix, is they actually have never found dinosaurs there, but astronauts actually took a dinosaur on a ride. How cool is that? All right, Augustine, Augustine, age nine, from New York City. What is a group of omnivores called? This is a great question. We call a group of meat eaters a pack. And we call a group of plant eaters a herd. What do we call omnivores? Do you call them a herd? Do you call them a pack? This is a great question. Maybe we call them a purd, a pack and a herd combined. Get it? (laughs) Right? Omnivores eat meat and plants. So pack, herd, purd. (laughs) I just made that name up. I just invented the word purd. That's a pack of omnivores. If any of you ever use the word purd, you have to pay me 10 bucks because that's my word. I am officially announcing it. I invented a new word called a purd. Okay. In all honesty, Augustine, this is a very, very good question. Uh, I don't know what the proper answer would be. I don't know if there's a proper answer. I, I would, I just don't know. This is a brilliant question. Thank you for stumping me. I don't know. But that's a very, very good question. That's an excellent question. Excellent. Okay, Jasper, who is three and a half years old, who lives in British Columbia, Canada. Hi, Dinosaur George. My name is Jasper, and I love Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I was wondering, why did T-Rex have such a strong bite? Thank you, Jasper. Very, very, very good question. The reason why is because T-Rex needs jaws strong enough to crunch through the armor of some dinosaurs, to crunch through the shield of ceratopsians, and to crunch through the big bones of some of the animals it eats. So it has a strong bite so it can attack anything. If you have a weak bite, then you don't get to eat as many different kinds of foods because it's harder for you to bite through the tough skin. But a strong bite means you can eat a lot of animals. Tyrannosaurus rex is a very large dinosaur. 
and therefore it needs to eat a lot of meat. And if you have to eat a lot of meat, you want to be able to eat a lot of different things. So that's why its bite was so strong, Jasper. Thank you for writing. That's very good. Hannah, age seven from San Francisco, says, what is the biggest pterosaur? I think Quetzalcoatlus still holds the record for being the biggest, but there's, what's the one, Hatzcoopteryx and Arambergiani, I think, are two of the other gigantic ones. And I'm not sure who is the biggest of the three. I know there are three big ones, Hannah, and I wish I knew for certain which one is considered to be the biggest. I don't know if they found enough of the other skeletons to know for certain, but I know that they're big. I'm so sorry I don't know the the absolute answer to this. So Quetzalcoatlus, Arambergiania, and Hatzcoopteryx, I think, are the three giants that I'm aware of. Very good question. Okay. Uh, Jojo, age six, from New York. How does T-Rex eat if they're so tall? How do they bend over? Ah, good question, Jojo. The reason why it's very easy for them to bend down is because of the way their body is built. Their nose and their tail are held at the same level, meaning that their body is horizontal. Horizontal means going side to side. They don't, their head isn't sticking straight up in the air. They don't stand like a, like a kangaroo. They are more like, uh, what's an animal that can compare them to? Wow. That's hard to say. I'm having trouble thinking of a two-legged animal, more like an ostrich. Only their heads aren't as high up in the air. A tyrannus, think of a, think of an ostrich held its head straight, its neck straight out in front of it. And it was at the same height of their tail. That's really how Tyrannosaurus walks. So they don't have to bend down very far at all. They just lean forward and down. So they are, they're long, but they're not so tall that it's hard for them to bend down. Let's see. Zane, age six from Canada. How do you become a paleontologist? Well, Zane, Going to school is the proper way to do it. You have to go get your degree in in uh, geology and paleontology. So going to college is the right thing to do. And one of the good ways to begin to start to work is to volunteer in museums. And I see that you said you just went to Drumheller and it was awesome. Have you ever been there? Yes. I used to host a television show on the History Channel called Jurassic Fight Club. I was the writer and I co-created the show, and I um, was the host. Well, we got to travel all over the country going into different museums to film, and Drumheller is one of the, the Royal Terrell is one of the museums we went into. I got to go in there after hours after it's closed. I got to walk around and look at all the cool stuff all by myself. I had that whole museum to myself. I felt like I was six years old, Zane. So, yes, I've been there, and it's absolutely great. So being a paleontologist, that would be a good example of a place that when you get older, if there's a museum near you, see if you can volunteer. That's a good way to start getting experience. Um, okay, Dylan from Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. How do scientists make the Indominus Rex? Well, Dylan, that since it's all pretend— there's not really a lot of science that goes into it because it's just a pretend thing for the movie. But from what I understand, they take the DNA from multiple animals and they, they used it to, to mix with modern reptiles and amphibians. And that's how they did it. In reality, you can't do that. You, you can't mix DNA from different animals and they turn into something new, but for the movies they did, but it was still a fun movie and I loved it. 
But so in reality, that's not something that they can do. But in the movies, they just did it by mixing up the DNA from different animals. Okay, Rowan, age four, from Jacksonville, Florida. Why did sauropods have such small brains? It's a great question. How come their brains are so tiny? It's because they didn't have to think about things that other animals have to think about. Their bodies are so big, they don't have to worry so much about wondering about other meat eater or meat eaters, and they don't have to worry about all those things. So the, all the brain has to do is tell them what time they need to eat, what time they need to drink, what time they need to go to sleep. So when you have a tiny brain that doesn't tell you much, that means that you're so big, you just don't have to worry about it. You just don't have to worry about it. All right. uh, Let's see. Uh, Let's see. Um, Here we go. Gabrielle, age eight, from here in Texas. Hi there. This is Gabrielle. I'm eight years old, and I have a question. When did Smilodon go extinct? That's uh that's a good question. That's a very good question, Gabrielle. When did Smilodon go extinct? At the end of the Ice Age, at the end of the Pleistocene era. The Pleistocene. So that was about 10,000 years ago. That was about 10,000 years ago. All right, my friends. That's going to be it for today. I didn't get the opportunity to go over to the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group, but I will do that on the next podcast. This one was just more kind of for fun. It was more to answer all those questions. I hope you all enjoyed this one. I will get back to doing a regular podcast uh, and that will be coming up very soon. I hope you all are doing okay. I hope everybody's being kind and taking care of yourselves and the people around you. Remember, it's always important to be kind to other people It's always important to treat people nice. And most importantly, I want you to remember, just because somebody thinks differently than you doesn't mean that you have to be mad or that you have to think they're wrong and you're right. Scientists change their opinions all the time when they find new evidence. So remember... If I say something that is different than what you think, it doesn't mean I'm right. It doesn't mean you're right. It means that we both have a different opinion. But every time new evidence appears, it helps us understand something different. So don't be worried about changing your mind about something. As a scientist, that's what you should do. You are future paleontologists. A paleontologist knows that they don't know everything. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to change the way you think because that's part of science. Until next time, everybody, treat people around you kindly, practice your reading, and always use good manners. I'll see you guys. to Dinosaur George Kids. Join the Dinosaur George Kids Facebook group, become a member of our Patreon club and check out our website store for cool fossils, rocks and crystals. Visit dinosaurgeorge.com for details. Until next time, keep digging for knowledge. Yeah. Yeah.